Hello and welcome to Arts Tonight. On the programme, the artist and civic society, duties and responsibilities. The subject of artist as citizen is a sensitive and sometimes fractious one. Does the artist have any duty or responsibility to civic society? Does she or he have a responsibility to anything except the art they make? Be it music, poetry, playmaking, sculpture, painting, whatever it is, the work through which they console, challenge, transform and enrich our experience of being alive in time. A recent gathering in Limerick to celebrate the 20th anniversary of the establishment of the Irish World Academy of Music and Dance at the University of Limerick hosted a debate on the theme of the artist as citizen and the role of the artist in civic society. Contributors included artists, academics and art curators. I talked to four of those taking part in the weekend discussion and was joined in studio in Limerick by choreographer and dance artist Fergus O'Crohur, by Miholo Sulawan, who's one of Ireland's best-known independent artists, as well as Professor of Music at the Irish World Academy of Music and Dance, by Jerry Kearns, Professor of Geography at Maynooth University, one of whose areas of specialty is identity and the citizen, and by independent art curator and director of the Fire Station Studios in Dublin, Helen Carey. I began by asking Miholo Sulawan about the 20 years of the World Academy of Music and Dance. Two decades on, did he feel it had contributed to a kind of democratisation of music and the study and understanding of our musical legacy in this country? Well, Vincent, I think that a lot of people who do know the Irish World Academy think of it very much in terms of our involvement in traditional performing arts of music and dance. Traditional music, as as we all know, a number of decades ago was not welcome in Irish universities or universities anywhere. And there are certain kinds of music and certain kinds of culture and art expressions which are not welcome on the university campus at different particular points for all kinds of reasons. Very often because the people who carry them aren't welcome. It's not actually the art forms themselves. So I've had the honour of seeing traditional art. Uh, in the first instance, music kicked open the door, but now we see it with dance as well. I, I emphasise I'm talking here about traditional music and traditional dance, even though it applies to many other forms as well. Uh, so the legitimation, if you wish, of traditional music inside the citadel of the university, I've often found myself saying to traditional music communities who were a bit nonplussed. I remember I was giving a lecture in Milltown Malbay there some years ago and somebody put their hand up. We had just started the MA in Irish traditional music performance, which almost was like kind of, it was sort of blasphemous, you know, that you would curricularise something like that. And, and somebody said in a very Irish way, I suppose now we'll have to have an MA from the University of Limerick to get into the session at the Central Hotel, <laughs> you know, which, which was a famous session that you'd get into if you were lucky at about midnight uh, when everybody was gone home. And I was angry at it, and I, I responded by saying, you know, look, if you have grown up and spent your life and inherited a culture of throwing stones at the walls of the citadel, it's time to wake up and realise that you have a right to be inside it. So it's that feeling of that you own the citadel. So when you talk about the Irish World Academy of Music and Dance, that's one of the things that has uh, enlivened us, has been that sense of... Uh, passionate ownership and people in a way waking up to a new ownership of the city. And of course that kind of passionate ownership of part of our cultural heritage it goes to the heart of, of what we're talking about today how how the people can engage with art and how art can speak to us and, and for us but that, that issue of the artist as citizen, um, as I said, is one that is often contentious. You know, people say an artist has no duty to anything except the art they make. There should not be any onus on the artist to have any responsibility towards society, uh, towards the state, even irrespective of whether or not they get funding from the state. Before we get into all of that, can I ask each of you what you understand by the idea of artist as citizen and how these two things meet, both historically and now, uh, especially in in this country. Helen, can I start with you? I think it's actually a very current debate and it's one that really goes to the heart of the divisions that we make between the arts or between the fields of artistic endeavour. And one of the terrains now that we describe visual art as occupying would be the socially engaged terrain. And that idea immediately brings up the question about what is the field that the artist is navigating? 
are they witnesses? Are they provocateurs? Are they catalysts? Is it involving change? Should they take responsibility for that change? And I think that certainly the socially engaged position certainly takes in the social sciences and ethnography as well, so that the artist does tend within this field of social engagement, take a position and defend a position. And when you go into that area, you are talking about what are the consequences of the artistic endeavour and that it doesn't just exist in isolation. The big question around this would be around aesthetics and to what extent can you describe the the output? And I use that word because that is a very salient word in what we look for from the arts today. What is the object? What is the output? What is the quantifiable? And once you start measuring you're immediately into problematics around aesthetics, that question, what actually is this artist doing? Um, From my point of view, I've found in looking at the way artists, say, for example, contemporary artists look at the past, you have an immediate problem about um, how they can be a portal into the idea of sentiment, emotion, the feelings that we're supposed to, to evoke within art. If we're talking about responding to the past... I think we need to ask artists to be of the present. And in doing that, the requirement, if you like, the idea about what the artist needs to engage with, shouldn't it be about society? And in that case, we are collapsing divisions between music, dance, visual arts, and equally between the sciences and the arts as well. So from where I'm positioned as a curator, I would say that the socially engaged arts begin to have the artist become a very real portal of information, but also there is a need for the artist to connect and sustain a responsibility within where they operate. And that might be in surveillance or it might be in migration issues or it might be, but it's society. So it's about people. Fergus O'Crohor, do you regard yourself as a socially engaged artist and do you feel it's important to be that? Well, I'm very interested in what Helen was talking about there in relation to engaging in a particular society because one of the challenges for me is to think about citizenship, which has always been based on the ideas of inclusion and exclusion. Who gets to participate? Who has rights? Who has responsibilities? And it's a particular interesting challenge for me because I'm someone who is an Irish citizen by birth, but who's lived in the UK for the past 20 years, making most of my work here in Ireland part of the the artistic community here, Um, feeling that my work is directed primarily here or in the first instance, but also someone who is networked um, not just in the UK but internationally. And so when I think about responsibility, I, I kind of wonder about to whom is my responsibility and one of the things that I I would hope that as an artist that I can bring is a sense of questioning about who gets included and who isn't included and particularly I mean I work in choreography so focused on the body and in recent years I've engaged very much with what the Irish body looks like, who is allowed to be in the national body. I'm working with an integrated dance group called Creeglon at the moment in Cork and so uh, dancers who are able-bodied and disabled. What bodies are we allowed to see on the national stage and what, what do we expect of them when we do see them? And I think one of the things choreography does is it allows people to move in different ways, puts people in different places in ways that you didn't expect to see them. So for me, the idea must always be about questioning who is included and then how they are included and what possibilities are given to them. Jerry Kearns, there is something in this isn't there, that, that we can no longer look to the citizen as merely the national citizen. We're in an increasingly globalised world. The citizen and civic society, in a sense, that, that, that concept has to extend and bring in more people. I think it does. I'd also like to say right at the beginning that I think that artists can engage as citizens. I I wouldn't like to be saying that artists should engage as citizens. I think there's a place for artists to set their own agendas. But I do observe that many artists do engage as citizens. They're attentive to uh, their neighbours. They're attentive to their place. They're attentive to the responsibilities they have. They're very reflective and sensitive about these things. They develop wisdom about these things. And these things obviously include more than the purely local obligations. They do include international connections. And one of the things that strikes me about the way at least some Irish artists have reflected upon these questions is that for many of them they ask the question, is it possible 
to be an Irish global citizen? Is it possible to be an Irish citizen of the world? Is this a cultural place from which I can aspire to the grandest themes that can be talked about? Is this a place from which I can engage with the big questions of, of the Enlightenment? And I think that uh, way of trying to develop a local self-confidence in culture that enables you to engage with uh, the world with, without cultural shame from, from a position of, of a cultural pride that's not chauvinistic. That, I think, has been the problem for, for at least some of the Irish artists that I've studied who've reflected upon these issues, which would include uh, James Joyce and, and James Clarence Mangan. And, and we'll, we'll talk about Joyce in, in particular in a while. Um, Michal, I, I'm thinking about especially what Fergus was saying in terms of, of the body and the representation of the body and uh, the fact that there's now as well the National Dance Archive at the University of Limerick. That, that is very important and an example again of the change that has happened where something is recognised and that kind of citizenship, if you like, the democratisation of, of, dan- of dance is, is very apparent there as well. Yeah, well, that's interesting, Vincent. The Dance uh, Archive of Ireland came from the vision of a colleague of mine, uh, Dr. Catherine Foley, who also set up the Dance Research Forum Ireland, DRFI, and it's characterised by a cross-genre approach. In other words, whether it's Irish hip-hop or Irish trad or Irish contemporary or Irish ballet, it's about dance across all genres. So firstly, that's important. I think if somebody had set up a dance archive 25, 30 years ago, it would have been trad a bit like the Folklore Commission or whatever, and all understandable in its own time. But it's, it, it's a very now feel to actually establish an archive which equally, and it's, it's absolutely equal. There isn't a question of, oh, we'll bring in this because if we don't, we'll be accused of. It's not that. It's coming from a very, very genuine thing. Uh, there's a journal entry by, uh, by W.B. Yeats where he says... Uh, an artist is a good citizen turned inside out. That's an exact quote from him. And I went back there this morning just to have a look at the context of the quote. And he's concerned about his nerves are at him again. His nerves always seem to be at him, you know, in his journals. And he's concerned about that inside thing. Oh, my God, I'm going to lose this poetic drive. The outside thing to him, interestingly enough, was the Abbey Theatre in the context of that. He was really worried about the Abbey Theatre. And he was a bit annoyed that I think it was drawing him away from that was in a way his social work or his citizenship work but he didn't say that an artist is not a good citizen he said an artist good citizen turned inside out so the notion there is that it's not the other side of the spectrum it's the other side of the coin so if I take my coat off and I turn it inside out well that's something that a clown does in a way, clowns very often do that. And when they do, it turns out that the real colour is in, is in the inside, actually, of the coat. So that notion of turning yourself inside out in a way that he kicks, kicks the ball actually in there. And there's one other poem by the Irish poet, the late uh, Michael Davitt, uh, Limnach, the one on Limerick, which he wrote at, at a very early stage. And he's walking through Limerick at night and he's just come back from Casa na Gráige on the Dingle Peninsula, the Gaeltacht. And he said, Tama Chion Lawn, the Casa na Gráige. My head is full of the fuchsia and it's full of Kerry and it's full of the Irish. And he's walking through this nondescript city and he even sees the uh, rubbish bins as fuchsia bushes and things like that. And then he says, Ma veren caravat orum taktishime, which means, if a tie, as in a suit and tie, uh, grab me, it will choke me. Now, that's the whole thing about, you know, as artists, we are always saying, I'm not a suit. <laughs> I'm not a suit. Fergus, I've never seen you in a suit. Indeed, you look very well in one. And you haven't seen me in one. I haven't got one, actually, to be honest with you. But uh, I'm kind of like an old rocker. I don't want to be seen in a suit. So there is a thing there about that. The suit so, is... Though many an artist has sported a suit uh, with, with the plum uh, and, and it hasn't affected the art. But I think that's a fantastic idea, that Yeats' idea of, of um, you know, the artist as, as a good citizen turned inside out. And again, I, th- I think that's speaks so much to what we're, we're talking about today. Fergus, coming back to that idea of the tension between the demands of uh, the artists to make their own work and sometimes the demands of the state, for example, and we'll talk about this in a while, uh, to commemorate and, and to get the artists to almost speak for us. Um, you know, you're somebody who chooses to engage to a certain extent in a broader public sphere. Do those two roles sit easily together or is there sometimes maybe a creative tension uh, in the the making of art that you know is uh, provoking? I I never set out to provoke people who know me would say I'm not not a, a radical but interestingly in relation to this idea of past and commemoration 
when I think of citizenship, actually, I think a lot of retroactive activity. So a kind of looking at the past that changes the past to show that the thing that seemed to be excluded was always already there. And I think about that in relation to, I mean, I grew up in the Ringgoltacht, so when Michal is talking about the kind of traditional Irish music and um, actually less dance, we didn't really have that tradition in, in Ring, but we certainly had fantastic music. I grew up with that tradition, but also a blow in. My family is a blow in to that community. So already having this sense of being a little bit outside that tradition, but completely immersed in it. And in a way, I have over the years um, gone back to that tradition to find, to put myself, find myself already inside it. And I think it's a strategy that I use regularly. So Match, a film that I made on Croke Park, a duet on Croke Park, it puts contemporary dance in the middle of that national narrative in that very important place. It was a film made for TV as well. So it, it's not only about putting it on Croke Park, it's also about putting it on television in a very visible way. Similarly, Mavur Fein, a dance film made in a church, is about putting that body, which at the time, um, Catholicism really not making a place for, for the body, not understanding how the body could work anymore. And people saying, oh, isn't it a little, aren't you worried about putting um, a semi-naked Irish man um, uh, in the middle of that church and me saying, well, there's always, always been a, a semi-naked man in the middle of that church. <laughs> so in a way, it's about working retroactively to sort of put things in a place to make them visible, make things visible that seemed that weren't visible before. And so it's less radical. It's less being outside of the citadel and shouting, but somehow finding a way to say, actually, I'm already here. there with Queen and Adriver and uh, Fergus when you hear that what does it bring back in relation to your own work? Well, it's interesting because one of the things that really brings to mind is physicality. Um, both Earl is amazing physicality because that, that voice comes through his body and then through his body to something much older. And the the, the hymn itself, Kuninidrivura, has had, there's a whole book written about it. It's had a, a wonderful history. And the original version talks about Mary when she kind of hears that her son is, is being crucified, of, of her jumping over a wall and jumping over, I think, a, a guard as well, or like a, a Roman soldier as well. Later versions, it gets transformed and becomes a more decorous, Christianized Western European. But that old Celtic idea of Mary, this it was of a, a kind of strong, uh, physical, capable, probably a, a goddess, really, a kind of goddess. And there is that something about that... Um, older, maybe pagan quality, but that materiality and physicality, which I know in the work I wanted to bring back into the into the performance and into that church space. And Irla is a fantastic person to collaborate with because he is both represents and can acknowledge respectfully a tradition, but also by going back and reaching forward, he creates new possibilities. And I think that's a thing I would like to align myself with. We'll talk in a while about how music perhaps can can articulate uh, so much for us and has done. I often think of, of, of what Sean O'Reilly carried in, in terms of a sense, uh, a maybe a created sense of a national identity, but something beyond that as well. Um, but Jerry, I want to talk to you about Joyce. You mentioned Joyce earlier. And I suppose in, in Ulysses, you know, Bloom and, uh, and the Citizen. Talk to me a little bit about that, about how for you, Joyce's writing in particular uh, looks at what we're talking about here today. Joyce, in a, in a number of his early essays, was very concerned about a certain chauvinistic nationalism that he saw in, in some of the work that, that was coming out of the Abbey Theatre, for example. Mm-hmm. And he was very harsh about 
the Celtic Twilight, referring to it in Finnegan's Wake as cultic toilette. Uh, and in Ulysses, he has this nationalist man in a, in a pub who uses Irish phrases, insults the English, is anti-Semitic and gets into a row with Bloom. And this man is referred to by everybody around as the citizen. And it's somebody who they look to for commentary upon public affairs. He has all the newspapers in front of him while he's drinking and he sounds off about everything. And it's always the same story, you know, the perfidious English and so on and so forth. So Joyce is satirising a certain way of relating national identity to citizenship. But uh, he satirised it to make space for something else. And he makes space for two things, I think. Firstly, he makes space for the example of Bloom, this person who, by genealogy, does not have the same claim upon Irish citizenship as the citizen claims all Irish people should have. This is somebody who is a blow-in. He's a Hungarian Jewish background. But Bloom is presented as the person who is pragmatic. Bloom is presented as the person who cares for other people. Bloom is presented as, as, as somebody of humility and generosity. Bloom is presented as the good citizen. If there is a model citizen in Ulysses, it, it, it's surely Bloom. And the second thing I think that Joyce is doing here is he's fulfilling a promise he made at the end of the portrait of the artist as a young man, where he has Stephen say that he has to leave Ireland so that he can go and encounter for the millionth time the reality of experience and to forge in the smithy of my soul the uncreated conscience of my race. So to forge the uncreated conscience of your race, that is Joyce's contribution to citizenship. I don't think that every artist has to do this, but Joyce took that on as something that he wanted to do. He wanted to give Irish people a way of being citizens that did not rest upon those sorts of chauvinisms, but did rest upon a cultural self-confidence. And there's nothing more Irish than, than Finnegan's Wake. Saturated with, with and Irish again a history. consciousness that is very much looking out, looking out of Ireland and beyond. I mean, and that's one of the miraculous things that I think Joyce did for for all of us was to to open all of that up. It's I suppose very much about who belongs in society and who has a right to be there. It very much does. And what we see here is somebody whose commitment to an abstract ideology converts them into the opposite of what they affirm they are. So the citizen affirms that he's Irish and therefore Catholic. He's a Christian. And, but he's so anti-Semitic that he takes it as an insult when Bloom reminds him that Jesus Christ was a Jew. And he then threatens to crucify Bloom for this insult upon Jesus Christ, c converting himself, in fact, into a, a Christ killer of sorts. So the, the ideology blinds uh, the citizen to the claims that should be made upon him by the needs of his neighbours. And it's this attentiveness to neighbours and it's this, it is this, it's this kindness and this generosity to neighbours that Bloom makes citizenship out of. And what Joyce is, is doing, in a sense, is giving Irish people uh, or trying to uh, allow Irish people to take some pride, take further pride in their culture with an attentiveness to their cultural traditions and using that attentiveness to engage with the biggest and most difficult questions that art was posing at the time, the questions of dislocated identity and modernity. And I think that that is his attentiveness. That's, that's, that's how he thought he was serving citizenship. And it's something that attempts to discharge that obligation he placed upon himself to forge in the smithy of my soul the uncreated conscience of my race. Helen, you were the, the first director of the Irish Cultural Centre in Paris. I think about a city, another city that Joyce loved yes. and you so well. Did that experience of uh, yeah. seeing Irish culture in a different uh, country, in a different place, in a different context, change the way you perceived almost what it is to be Irish or, or how yeah. Irish art is, is regarded? Uh, yes and no. There's no um, easy answer there, but I, I take what Jerry says very... Um, it encourages me, because if Joyce, when he arrived in, say, Paris, wanted to talk about the questions of his time, about dislocation and modernity as being the kind of... the, the urgencies, it, it's very reassuring, because when I arrived in Paris, the questions of our time then were what the artists that I brought over to Paris were dealing with. So we had Anthony Hawley talking about migration and cultural diversity. We had uh, Owen Fuere talking about, you know, the, the cross-culturals within theatre. And what was really interesting was how this upended the traditional notion of who the Irish were for our Parisian audience. And that, I felt, was an imperative that the Cultural Centre in Paris had to engage in because, as Eileen Gray, another great 
emigre who found a place in Paris, said, what can we ask of artists but to be of their time? And yes, I suppose to some extent, when I went to Paris, I was coming from an Ireland I knew, but I was going to a place who didn't know the Ireland that I knew because they were quite heavily invested in the romantic Ireland, possibly of Yeats actually, and wishing that we could bring that back to them in a way that actually those who are dislocated from Ireland often invent for themselves or they they have a, a way of bringing a myth or a, a, an ideal with them. And if we talk about the globalisation or the idea of not being able to hide who we truly are these days because we live on internet, because we live in virtual, because there are so many other platforms where we can verify things. Irish artists, it seems to me today, deal very much in truth and in uh, a, a need to look to the future as well uh, because it's it's in plain sight. And this was the kind of agenda we set ourselves in Paris, that we were going to talk about the Ireland, as it turned out, of the boom. And all that that brought, which actually from the distance in Paris could be punctured with a certain amount of irreverence. And actually every now and then that happened, although it would be folly to say that we didn't present the Ireland we thought we knew. And as it turns out, it was a different kind of Ireland. And we're coming to understand now what all that was about, I suppose. But the urgencies that I find artists today, what they look at, it's not just an Ireland in isolation. You look at the work of Mark Curran, who I've worked with before. He looks at the International Stock Exchange as having an impact on our lives here in Ireland, right down to the decisions that are made about our education budget. Or if we decide what's not going into education, he works on that in his art. And it's an ethnographic approach, but it goes from Addis Ababa through Dublin, through Frankfurt, through London, through one one of his works is a soundscape punctuating of Michael Noonan's speeches with the word market translated into an algorithm that is in a, in a space that's immersive, that the whole experience in there is of a, a sort of a saturation of sound that every now and then reaches a crescendo. And he changes that. If he's in Paris, he'll do Pierre Moscovici's speeches. If he's in London, he does George Osborne's speeches. And it's the idea of the saturation of the market. At the same time, you're looking at a tall tower of paper data that's over six six foot tall. And this is the physical manifestation of the nanosecond of data that is now going around the stock exchange. He's trying to do, and what he achieves within this, I feel, is the, the physicality of something that's very abstract. Now, if we if we have Mark Curran's approach to that kind of uh, cyber reality, if you like, mm. you have someone like Deirdre O'Mahony producing a turf stack in a gallery. This Draw, was here, this here in Limerick. This was here in Limerick, actually. Yes, absolutely. This was last year. A turf stack talking about the current turf cutter problem. And... Which becomes a European issue. It is a European issue, which is governed by legislation that's far away from us in terms of being on the turf on the bog. But behind that, in the gallery, you see Paul Henry's turf cutters in the field. And she draws something very physically through this kind of installation through to the past directly. And so with two artists such as those, you're talking about their, their dealings with Ireland in a very physical way, a very local way, and similarly say in a, an international way that explodes the idea of being able to have an Ireland that's decodable in purely local terms. And at the same time, it's incredibly relevant to our experience of Ireland day to day. You know, again, going back to the notion of, of you from abroad, I don't think you can go abroad anymore. Abroad is everywhere. In home is everywhere. So we are abroad. We are abroad. And the idea that they, they are looking at how we are seeing ourselves. They are here. They being the other has been invented differently now for our age. Fergus, for you, are there particular works you've made that engage 
particularly around what we're, what we're talking about. Well, it's, I mean, it goes to the heart of thinking about what it is, what my intention is in making the work. And actually, I would always say that I make work to um, ask questions rather than kind of communicate answers that I already have. Mm. But the important thing about that is that the way to find out uh, some answers to that questions is actually to put myself in situations where I don't know and to work with other people and other ideas. And so one of the things that I want to bring into this discussion in a way is thinking not only about the output, about the product, but that the life and practice of an artist is a practice of citizenship or it's a way of practicing being in the world. And so the relationships that you have when you make the work, the people with whom you make it, how you share it, how you distribute it, those are all for me key opportunities to test and try out how you would want to work with people. And so if I take an example like Cure, which is um, a solo that I'm performing at the moment, Actually, Cure was commissioned, I I commissioned Cure from the five dancers and one visual artist that I'd been working with a lot over the previous years. So I had one kind of relationship where I was the choreographer asking them to do things and I wanted to change that power relationship. So when I appear on stage as a solo artist, I'm already connected and kind of embodying their, their material. Now, the thing is, I would actually say that that solo is probably the most me I have ever been performing on the stage, even though it is made through others, through through a kind of community that I've started to build up over the years. In addition to working with that community, those neighbours, um, how I want to work with them, there's also opening the rehearsal process, as I always do, to having people coming into the rehearsal studio so that it's not just an encounter that happens on the stage. And then there's also, when I performed in Dublin, we had a, a lunch, a supper, at um, at the fire station, station where Helen is. And the supper was to have food, to have care. I prepared food for people to host a discussion around this idea of cure and recovery. Mm. And those are all kind of small things, but what they are is an attempt to find other ways of engaging and building a community, a network of people. And the care I take in those relationships is just as important as how the work is received. Because there are choreographers, some of you will know the work of DV8, one of, not his current show, but the previous show, um, we have to talk about it. It's a show that is directed very vehemently against the dangers of religious fundamentalism and the curtailing of freedom of speech. Now, I know Lloyd Newson, and he himself would say he's a dictator in the rehearsal studio. Mm. The dancers, if they get something wrong, will have to come in the next day and rehearse. Now, for me, that's a real challenge because actually there is no surprise on that stage. Everything has to be exactly as it was planned. There cannot be any deviation. There cannot be any deviation in DV8. That is not the way I want to work because for me the, the artistic practice has to be a kind of exploration of how I want to create relationships in the world. Is, is collaboration then an important aspect of, in relation to, to all of this? I mean, for you, Michal, I mean, is working with other people uh, an important part of us? Is there a difficulty in doing that between your own creative impulse and then working with others? Well, I think there's the buzz that you get actually from the other, from working with others. And when Fergus is talking about that, I think of improvisation, that which is not provided for <laughs> improvisus. It's a channel through which something can come because you've left the space for it to come. And of course that can happen on your own and it does happen on your own as well in the solo dance, I'm sure, or if I'm at the piano on my own, even without an audience or I'm on my own at home or something. And I get into a, a particular kind of a space, which is very, uh, it's a very pleasant space to be in. You know, I feel really good because something has, something has happened. And it's a bit like a holiday. I always feel that if you can actually get it right in the performance, that you've gone on your holidays, turned off some part of your brain, but some other part has actually come on. When you have a collective, you have a sense of communitas, where if you have left the space for improvisation, which isn't completely anarchic, of course, you know, there's a whole load of stuff that's set up, but you leave the space for something to happen, which is the opposite to being dictatorial. So, no, I mean, for me, collaboration with others is uh, a way through and up and onto a whole kind of a stage that otherwise wouldn't happen. 
Uh, Jerry, as an academic, you rely on, on the work of others to make your own. Oh, yes. Um, um, I'm very parasitical in a, in, a, in a certain way. Most of my work has been historical, so I haven't had the same sense of obligation that I'm developing now that I'm working with, with people like Fergus. Mm. I was recently in South Africa uh, talking to people in townships about HIV prevention, and suddenly you realise you're taking up the time of people who, if they weren't talking to you, could actually be saving a life. And you have the, there's a different sort of, of responsibility that comes with academic work that's collaborative with people that are, that are still living. Some, some of the things that seem individual are not completely individual. So that something like texts like Joyce's, which might seem to be very isolated and reduced in isolation, I think still has the generosity of opening up to people to come into that text. In fact, Joyce's ideal reader was probably somebody like my father who knew all the Dublin city slang and could get every single reference in Ulysses. Often if I don't know something, I ring up my father and, and ask him what a tanner for the mirror was or something and he, he tells me the story. Joyce's text could best be completed in a certain way by some of the people that didn't think of themselves as having great cultural capital. And that's what I mean about the generosity of the way that Joyce gave Irish people a certain cultural self-confidence. The people who could best understand this very difficult work of modernist literature were, the, were his neighbours, the people that he hung around in, the, the people that his father drank with in the pub. And I find that uh, is also a form of collaboration, that a written work is completed in the reading and the understanding of it, and it can be opened up in exactly the same way that improvisation in dance can be opened up for other people to be empowered to complete it. You, you also wrote recently about uh, a new piece that's gone into the library in Maynooth, uh, that Hughie O'Donoghue painting installation, a terrific piece. I've seen it there. And what you wrote was very interesting. It's looking at, at art and, and your own response to it. I'm interested in that idea of where universities especially, those sorts of cultural institutions can help to foster uh, the arts by deliberately bringing artwork in and asking people to respond as you did to that piece. I think that um, attention, attentiveness, care, these are extremely important values for citizens. And universities can give care and attentiveness to works of art. They can give concentrated attention to things. They can, they can convene concentrated attention. So when I saw Red Books, which is this uh, display of famous people or cultural heroes of Huey O'Donoghue done out like an alphabet and they look like the old, the old penguin books, it immediately brought me back to my youth and my, my relationship with books. And in a sense, my cultural self-confidence as somebody of Irish descent living in Luton had to come through literature. There were no people with any of the surnames of the kids I went to school with famous in, in, in English society. The only famous Irish person was Eamon Andrews. That didn't sound like a particularly Irish name. McGeegan, Kearns, Foy. We only saw these people in the, in the, in the court reports. But in literature, the Irish had the Nobel Prize. You know, George Bernard Shaw only lived down the road from where I lived in Luton. I would go to the public library and I could see the photographs and paintings of George Bernard Shaw. And in some way, I knew that he was one of me or I was one of him. I had a connection to a, a cultural patrimony that was established through books. So Huey O'Donoghue's piece really reminded me of how important books had been in giving me some, some self-confidence as a child in a society where... Uh, the Irish immigrant was not expected to be an intellectual. And it's interesting that it was within a public space that you saw Shaw and, and became aware of that. And so I, I often think that people in universities uh, seeing something like that Hugh O'Donoghue piece may think beyond uh, the obvious and may think beyond what they're, what they're studying. And, mm. I, I, and maybe there isn't enough of that, Michal, in, in, in universities, oh, no, in institute, third-level institutions. I mean, universities have been uh, completely negligent uh, in that, not just in Ireland, but internationally, in terms of catching up and real uh, recognizing the imaginative, you know, recognize the importance of the imagination. As any good scientist will tell you, or any good engineer will tell you, you know, the key to invention and, and innovation is imagination. It isn't only in the arts, but it's in the arts in a particular way. And when a university is clever enough and allow that uh, intuitive, imaginative gesture which we associate with the arts onto the campus, it seems to infect everything. It increases morale right throughout the campus because it brings the heart to the table as well as the head. And universities, by definition, are always afraid of heart because it's a subversive element, actually, in society, as indeed perhaps the artist as citizen is subversive. 
you know, that, that, that element of turning from beneath. So the artist as cultural subversive is also always one that uh, has interested me. And I know from my own, I've a lifetime now of working on university campuses and I've always felt that I'm a subversive in that system. And I'm always looking around for the occasional president or vice president or dean who will actually cop on to what is actually going on. Not that I always know myself. But by the way, that's important if, you, if you're lucky enough, as I am currently, to be absolutely honest with you, to be working in a university which has imagination in the upper levels of, of management. You have a pretty good possibility that when something artistic is beginning to seed on the campus, that there's going to be somebody there who will warm it. Um, of course, it, it, there's a particular timeliness in considering the, the role of the artist in society. In Ireland, uh, these years with the, the various anniversaries and commemorations coming up, no doubt uh, poets and musicians and artists of all kind will be asked to reflect on, on the past and seek, I suppose, to inspire us all in, in some way. That's an interesting one as well, isn't it? The idea that, that we do look to the artist at such times to articulate something for us. And I, I was struck recently, you know, the ceremonies in Berlin to mark 25 years uh, since the Berlin Wall came down and those floating balloons of light yeah. along the border of, of where the wall had been. Helen, you know, as a curator, yeah. I suppose, you, you must be yeah, thinking about this. Absolutely. And, and you, yeah. you were involved in the you know, yeah, 1913 no, centenary celebrations of that. I've, I've worked a lot on the notion of how do we use art and I use that word use art to express something that actually is very contentious. Commemorations can look like they're very consensual and when we look back on it it all looks like it's all gone terribly smoothly but actually it's a time of great political and social discussion which is often very conflictual and we kind of look to the artists to create something out of this that's going to be solid and expressive and articulate of something which is a really tall order. The idea of the monumentality or the idea of permanence has usefully given away to the idea of the ephemeral and you described the balloons. Those balloons are off somewhere now. We don't have to sort of locate them and that's actually a real relief. An exhibition that's currently on show in Limerick at the moment is called White, Lest We Forget. It's one I curated and there we have the artist Rita Duffy looking at conflict in the north in terms that are about now and it's about the idea of how conflict continues and persists but not in heavy handed terms for her she's looking at the merchandising and the idea of the industry that, that grows up around it but also an armalite gun that she has made from a mould that was in active use she's made into chocolate and this idea that it, it can all melt away and yet it's all terribly visceral I think we can ask artists to capture something but I think that lightness that you're describing to do with Berlin is crucial if we're talking about commemorative gesture in 2016, for example, coming up, where we don't have the answers. We don't know what kind of society. We absolutely can't ask the artist to say it all in one fell swoop, but we can, uh, we can ask the questions and we must not be afraid to be contentious about that. And the idea that a march past the GPO in any kind of artistic <laughs> sense satisfies our understanding of the society we live in today is, is absurd. But what would be really interesting to do is to try and look for, trying to catch that alchemy that, you know, you were talking about improvisation, you were talking about bringing people together, that idea of trust in an artist to not sort of set an agenda, political, social or any kind of hard and fast agenda and trust in a muse or trust in the honour or trust in the connectedness that when people come together, that alchemy that actually is what art is can be created rather than a prescription where you have box ticking exercises and endless batting backwards and forwards in plain view and thinking that that's commemoration. I, I don't know. You, the idea of the one thing I do want to say is that, you know, what we're looking back on and what we're looking forward to, we mustn't be afraid to actually be melancholic or 
you know, think of grief as well as the joy and happiness of it. It's a, it's a really kind of important to be brave about that. Uh, Fergus, uh, lightness, questioning, courage, yeah. the ability to grieve, to articulate more, key to, to all of this, as Helen was saying. I mean, for you, for instance, can movement and dance bring us to unexpected places of, of emotion and, and, and maybe to a, a potentially deeper engagement with a kind of shared history, more than, than official events and pomp and ceremony might ever do? Actually, I'm I'm really committed as a kind of cheerleader for choreography. One of the, the things that I really appreciate about dance is the fact that it puts things in motion so things can transform. There's a materiality. It's not just an abstract. It is embodied, but it's a, in a body that can change and images that can transform in a moment so that contradictions can be held together. And when, when we're talking about a, a kind of march past the GPO, I immediately think about that as a structure and what kind of weaving, what kind of dance past the GPO could happen, what kind of weaving in and out of that very regimented structure could happen. I'm preoccupied actually by by this kind of period of commemoration and I'm thinking about my own research around nationalism in the Irish body and my particular focus is around Roger Casement as a very interesting compromised body himself as well as a bicultural but what interests me about him is that his coming to nationalism his recognition of the need for some kind of change in the situation in Ireland comes through his experience of colonial oppression in Congo and in the Amazon so the world this international experience is what helps this particularly Irish nationalist experience emerge for him. And for me, I I start to reflect on then the experience of, for example, um, lesbian and gay asylum seekers who are in direct provision in Ireland. What would a national commemoration look like from their perspective? And for me, dance is a way, a kind of, sometimes it's not about articulating in words, but it can be about expressing and uh, expressing through the body, through materiality, a thing that we haven't, be necessarily so good at. We have this fantastic uh, literary culture where we're good with words at saying things. And for me, there's always been, my move towards dance has been a kind of recognition that there's another kind of experience that we need to be able to express. And fortunately for me, dance provides the kind of format for me to investigate and communicate that. And uh, th- these different languages, I think, are, are key to to so much. And Michal, of course, music and another language. And uh, I'm sure there may be new music commissioned uh, around these years uh, but I know you a few years ago were asked to come up with new music for the film yes. Irish Destiny um, yeah. and uh, what was it like coming up with music for that and is, the, is there a freedom I presume it's a challenge but it's part of what you do Well to its, in, in the commissioning body was the Irish Film Institute so they never got in the way I mean, just got a carte blanche do the stuff you know so that, there was no complexity there as you could imagine something like that you could have had some nationalist organisation shall we say you know Tending to give you a free hand but actually really wanting you to do something else. The film itself is 1925 and was shown in 1926 on the 10th anniversary of 1916 and the full Irish Free State Government actually came out. There's photographs in the papers at the time of Cosgrave and all the lads in there looking at it. Exactly the same thing happened under the De Valera government with Mishaera. They all came out again. And I remember as a kid, in fact, getting the afternoon off to walk down to the cinema with the school to see Michaela. It was a national thing. But for me, uh, Irish Destiny is it's a love story set against the War of Independence using archive footage and stuff like that as well. So what I did actually in it in the end was to take the National Anthem, which I don't like uh, either as a tune and certainly the marriage of the Irish language words and the and the music it just simply doesn't work. Uh, but nonetheless, it's, it's imprinted in all our minds. By slowing it down and down and down, suddenly something came out of it. It's a bit like uh, not so much cracking a nut as dissolving it under heat or something like that. All of this emotion starts to come out, which was very useful for me, of course, because I needed a, a kind of a nationalist incense uh, <laughs> to become, you know, you, that had to be, if just to be real film music, there was no real room for the ego kind of in here, you know, you were there to warm the film and not to get in the way of the film. The thing was to, can you extract the love out of the national anthem? Now, there's a challenge, Ella. <laughs> yes, <laughs> can you extract? with me. <laughs> there's something to curate. Uh, so anyway, that's, uh, that is actually what happened in the case of, uh, of Irish Destiny. I do, kick, by the way, get asked all the time. I was also commissioned to do the music for, uh, in commemoration of Ernie O'Malley. 
by his son. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So mm-hmm. I seem to be sort of an official nationalist kind of commissioner, <laughs> which sometimes makes, so worries me a little. Musical I think it's because yeah. I'm dealing with traditional music materials yeah. in such an obvious way that people would think of me yeah. in that regard. But I do do other things. <laughs> <laughs> Jerry, it's, it's, it's a tricky area, this, isn't it? You know, the, the notion of, of the artist being, being called on to come in at an official level to help commemorate. And yet it's perhaps inevitable and, and to a certain extent a good thing. Well, I think there'll be no shortage of of artists who will be looking for commissions, and it's, it it is a way that arts arts gets funded. I would just hope that the commissions went through institutions that have a long standing involvement with the arts in questions, rather than through the hands of political apparatchiks who will imagine that their taste is a national taste. It certainly might be a politically safe taste, whereas if you were to entrust the arts institutions with this, you would actually be reinforcing those institutions just in the way that that Yeats reinforced the Abbey uh, and created an institution. A part of his work of citizenship was institutional, I think. So I I hope that in the the commemoration... It may be too late now. You know, you've barely got time to hire the uh, sound engineer, never mind sustain an institution out of which something created might come. The arts institutions in Ireland are grotesquely underfunded and to put aside a very large sum of money to be handed out uh, according to the taste of some um, cultural uh, apparatchnik is really doing a disservice to the broader community. A cultural committee which of course comes back to a certain extent to the idea of citizens and society and the state and what's made and and how but um, I'm thinking about again about Berlin and the balloons and one thing that struck me was that each of those balloons was released by a person on the ground. It wasn't done by technology. It was really simple and it coming back to the body Fergus and the physical being the human being and their space within the making of art. It, it, for me, I suppose, it all comes back to that and maybe, you know, at the end of the day, that is what, what art is about and, and, and citizenship is where we as humans, by instinct, make uh, sometimes what we don't even understand and what articulates more than we might, might know. Well, I agree. For me, art in particular, and and I I would say with choreography, but also in the way that Jerry talks about kind of Ulysses making that space for a a reader to to complete it. My job is about making structures that allow people to flourish inside them and whether they're choreographic structures that happen on the stage but also whether they're about structures about how that work engages with an audience how an audience has been involved how people have been involved in making it that for me is the crucial role of the artist what kind of structures can we make to help other people to flourish Making the art, Helen? Yeah, again, to be of its time is really important if we take 1966 and the development of the Ushin Kelly sculpture in the Garden of Remembrance, which I think fascinatingly is bodies arising out of birds arising out of bodies. It's extraordinary and actually is terribly resonant, but it's of its time. And the torturous history that Ushin Kelly went through to actually get that sculpture made is something of a reflection of how modern Ireland was emerging out of that time. So I think what we need are... are even, in a, and dare I say it, it doesn't all have to be done by the end of 2016. I think that's the really interesting thing is perhaps that's the start. And if time is an issue, we can start in 2016. It doesn't all have to be done. So the commissioning process, you can involve the citizen, but you need to involve people who know how to get it done, which I think is Jerry's point. But that, that's what I'd say. I'd say look on 2016 as a start. Okay, um, I think we've we've just begun a debate here uh, and one that, that will continue and I'm sure we'll come back to it again. Helen Carey, Fergus O'Croher, Jerry Kearns and Michal Asulwan, thank you all very much indeed. That's it from us next week. We'll be taking a first look at a landmark new series of publications on the art and architecture of Ireland. Five volumes from the Royal Irish Academy and the Paul Mellon Centre published by Yale University Press. A remarkable project and achievement and we'll be looking at it in detail on Arts Tonight. Join us next Monday at 10. Good night. Arts Tonight is produced by Cleonany Onluan.